0: Welcome to episode 52 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, our final episode going along with Calvary's Read the Bible in a Year plan. Not quite to the end of the calendar year, but we're uh, pulling into the station with our coverage of the reading plan here with the letters of John, the very brief note from Jude, and the book of
1: Revelation. So... One of the things I do want to say is that if you are listening to this first because you've decided to, for whatever reason, listen to this podcast, and this is the most recent one in the feed, um, please don't do that. We want to encourage you, unless you are specifically here for one of the books that we're going to talk about today, of course, it's wonderful. Um, any, any beginning with revelation listening to a podcast is just going to make the people sound a little wacky. So we want to encourage you to not make this your introductory experience into Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. I don't know. <clears throat> Way at the beginning, we
0: said maybe people should start with Revelation. Do did we? you remember we? that? We did. I you don't know? remember that. And then you told the story about the convert that uh, asked yeah. you to, first things first, lead Let's him go through, through Revelation. the book of Revelation. And you only made it four five. chapters in, yeah. five chapters in. Right when it gets good. I know. <laughs> so yeah. I think we'll uh, we'll take the letters of John maybe as just to you know, talk about all three of them. Okay. At the same time. So 1 John is the longest one, and then second and third John are very, very brief. brief. Single, almost said single sentence. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, Paul likes to run on I mean, sentences, but John's
0: Greek is very nice. A single Greek sentence. I don't know. <clears throat> uh, but first John's obviously longer. Uh, Pastor Clayton, could you tell us a little bit about just the inciting, what it seems like the inciting incidents were for John
1: to write these letters to the church? So... We have in, I mean, assuming that the Apostle John wrote all of these letters, and I think that he did, um, there is some debate about that, but I don't know, it does seem like people will debate literally anything to avoid real historical people that were close to Jesus having written anything. Right. But <laughs> um, I suspect this was John, and it does seem like in, in first and in second John specifically, um, there is some kind of false teaching that is a concern. And we see right here at the beginning of First John in the first few verses, I mean, he emphasizes the tactileness, the tactile reality of Jesus. They could touch him. Mm-hmm. And while that doesn't jump off the page at us, I think that would have to people that were hearing some of these other things that were being talked about at the time, because a big part of that was the idea that Jesus was just a spirit who had not actually had a body and John right at the beginning says, Nope, he was life itself, but he, he had a body. I touched him. I hugged him. Um, he doesn't say hug. That's, but that's what he's, wow. that's what he's communicating. The possibility here. for hugs. Well, yes. There. The possibility. There. I imagine Jesus was a hugger. You think he was a hugger? I don't know if they culturally hugged like we do, but if he was mm. here today, he'd be a hugger. I'm convinced of it mostly because I'm a hugger and I want to believe that about Jesus. Um, but that does seem to be a big part of what is going on in first John. And then there's this emphasis. And, oh, well, I was just gonna say,
0: cause later on, I think in chapter three, mm-hmm. he talks about, you know, if any spirit denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, that spirit is antichrist. And so, yeah, just, that's a major, major mm-hmm. issue. It seems like he's, he's writing to address is this very early, uh, confusion about what not even necessarily what Jesus was in terms of his nature, because it's not that they're necessarily saying he wasn't God, but that it's almost like they're leaning too far into that to say he was so much God that he wasn't actually a real person. He just looked like one. Yes. Yeah.
1: And um, one of the things that's neat about John, and so this is moving from the original purpose into the way that he writes. Mm-hmm. Is, and we see this in his gospel, and I think we talked about it there too. John loves a good metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, he is the metaphorical writer. And when we get to Revelation, that is a whole different ballgame. Um, but he, John takes after Jesus this way. When we read about Jesus's sermons or the way Jesus taught, Jesus loved a good metaphor. Paul, who certainly uses metaphors, he's not <laughs> as captured by them as, right. as Jesus was and as John is. Um, And and it's just a way of thinking. I imagine that John picked up from Jesus, Mm -hmm. going around with him all the time. And so when you're reading John, you're going to get hyperbole, which is this overstatement of a a point to make a point. We think about when someone says to their spouse, you never do the dishes. Mm -hmm. They don't mean never in the entirety of our relationship have you done the dishes. They mean rarely, but they are making the point intensely. Mm -hmm. John does that a lot in in his gospel and then also in his letters. Jesus did that a lot, and I Mm -hmm. think that's why John does it. What we have to avoid is reading the letter of John like it is an engineering manual, um, because he's going to overstate things, and he's not trying to deceive you. He's making a point, and that's Mm -hmm. just really important to note. Yeah. And John... I mean, he he takes up kind
0: of a theological idea that is present elsewhere, but I think John just does it, and he does it right off the bat. Here is kind of talking about Jesus as our advocate before the Father, uh, and I think I think it's if people c- come to these verses a lot here in in chapter one. Um, let's see here. But if we walk in the light, in verse 7, in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And it just seems like it's this idea that, of course, Jesus' death on the cross was the sacrifice, the propitiation of atonement, like that's a finished matter. But also, like Jesus today is before the Father as our advocate. Not that God has to be reminded that Jesus died, and we've talked about this before, that Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and return are really kind of four parts of a single drama or a single act. You know, obviously they're different, you know, but I think hopefully you know what I mean, is that they're really at one one work of rescue and redemption that we're still in the middle of. We're still awaiting Jesus' return. But so it's not that Oh, we weren't really saved when Jesus died because he has to advocate for us before the Father. It's like, well, no, those are two yes. those are two kind of, of uh, acts in the same great, you know, drama of redemption. Hopefully that makes sense what I'm saying. My my <laughs> metaphor. But just that I think it it kind of takes it takes something that happened even in the past for John's original audience and makes it present to them right now, right? That Jesus' rescue, Jesus' redemption is something that, yes, it happened when he died at this point a decade ago, however long ago for us, 2000 years ago. But like the, the effect of that is active is present right now, you know, today for those of us who confess our sins and Mm -hmm. and believe he's faithful to forgive us. And I think that's just a, that's a, John was a, I think a very sensitive pastoral apostle, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, just in terms of knowing what the people need, what the people need. And it also makes me think of in Hebrews reference this and we didn't really, we didn't, we didn't pick it up last week. And again, we can't talk about everything, but that we talked about this idea of accommodation in Hebrews and Hebrews 10, I think says, you know, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But it was there for the Israelites feelings of guilt. Yes. <laughs> and a so point. like, yeah, sure, sure. And a point forward. But like it was in some ways it was, it was a way for them to know not that their sacrifice took away their guilt, because Hebrew says it didn't, but but to know that they are accepted by Yahweh, you know, through his his forgiveness and through his salvation, when they they feel that conviction, because John will, later in the letter will talk about there is no fear, you know, in love and like this the presence of guilt and and so it just seems like that sort of a, that Christian struggling with yeah. guilt and sin and condemnation is. Kind of part of what is background in this letter.
1: Absolutely. We don't, as Protestants, have a whole lot of good language for this. Mm-hmm. Um, the Catholics use penance for this. Right. The idea isn't that you do penance or you're not forgiven. The idea is you do penance so you can feel forgiven. The right. forgiveness is already there. Um, and man, I got to say, I don't think that's a bad idea. No. Uh, it, it really so. does help.
0: The application may sometimes wander yes, into silliness. Sure. Well, because I think even just from our position the number of people who have felt bad for something for years and they know in their heads that God has forgiven them. And the reality is that God has forgiven them. It's like, man, if only there could be some kind of a penance, some kind of a prescription we could give them to say, do this so that you feel forgiven. Yes.
1: Well, and like one of my favorite examples of this, there is a fund um, for people that cheated on their taxes to anonymously give money to the federal government to make up for what they did cheating on their taxes and Without it being makes held accountable. millions and millions of dollars every year just because they cheated on their taxes they got away with it but they feel so guilty they can't live with it so they give money to this account that will not they won't get prosecuted for to make them feel better and it makes millions of dollars every year they can't point to that if they get audited by the IRS they right. still committed the crime it is just to ease their guilt Uh, That is a real human experience. And I think all of us, if we're honest and we think about it for a bit, can acknowledge that even when a person says the words, I forgive you, Often we, we still don't
0: want to be able to do something. Yes. Yeah.
1: Well, it's why me, one of the things I struggle with when I feel like I've actually done wrong is I, I apologize over and over and over again. I hate that. I, hate I know when you do that. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> and so with you, I try to only apologize once, uh, but the, but it's this feeling I have of I've done wrong and I have to make up for it. and, I know that my apology, again, isn't it's all it's doing is trying to communicate sincerity, yeah. but it is that that desire to do a thing to make up for it. Right. That's why well, husbands bring flowers to wives. Right, when right. And again, them.
0: I don't think they're wrong. I mean, <laughs> the the thing itself usually cannot actually fix the problem you've caused. Right. But just like the sacrifices didn't actually the blood of bulls and goats didn't actually cleanse from sin, you know, but but there's a way in which it is an expression of the relationship itself. Right. Sure. And like the fact that the gift is offered and received is the evidence that mm-hmm. the relationship is, is is well is fine, you know. And I think penance itself be is probably a bridge too far for our good. Yeah, know, I'm Protestant not saying listeners. go to go to confession no no no. And, no, and penance, I wasn't yeah. saying you were, but well, but what I would say is that I think that this idea of confessing our sins is obviously biblical. John just told us to do it, you mm-hmm. know, and and. And so this idea of like, well, but God already knows and blah, 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 It's like, yeah, you're right. He does. Just like he knows what you're going to pray for before you pray for it at all. You know, but I think it's still, it's deeply biblical and actually deeply Christian. It's not a denial of the gospel to ask for God's forgiveness every day. No, <laughs> You know, it's like, well, if I really believed and, and in some ways you're, that's true. If you really believed in, in God's forgiveness, then you wouldn't need to, but we don't. And we have to. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and he is merciful to us in the midst of our unbelief, right? Mm-hmm. Lord, help me. What What's the guy say to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark? With my unbelief. I believe, help me in my unbelief. You know, I'm butchering it, but that's you know. Oh, that's I think the that's idea. the NIV's translation. Okay, I do believe, help my unbelief. Yeah, that kind of thing.
1: So, uh, if I can, you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier and spoke well about the the we talked about the way that John is a he exaggerates, and then you read the part about um, if you don't have sin, you're lying, yeah. right? One of the tensions we see when we talked about John's hyperbole, you can find in John, First John 3, when he's just said, anyone who denies have, sinning is, is lying. Then we go on to chapter 3, and he says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. <laughs> yeah. Because God remains in them, they cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. He did not forget what he said two <laughs> chapters earlier. Again, this is a tension, right. and it's an exaggeration for effect. Right. Yeah. The reason I'm harping on this is I've heard people go to this and, and say that this is contrary to the gospel or this is contrary to what they've always heard. And it's strange how we forget how people talk mm-hmm. when we read letters of the Bible. It's, that's fascinating to me. Um, because these are people communicating well, with language right, and right. they do that the same way we do, but the Bible feels like a different category to right, us. Right. And so, and it, because so it we want to honor it
0: immune to some of those more human structures.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, Jesus uses sarcasm, right? Yeah. Hyperbole, all those right. things. That's because that, he was a real person mm-hmm. that you could touch. <laughs> when he like says the to Bible the apostles is a real book. <laughs> that's right. When he says to the apostles, are you still so dull? I Love that so much. He's trolling the apostles. It's fantastic.
0: So John references something, a phrase in chapter two called antichrist. And so I think it would be good to maybe touch on that a little bit and what he means, especially in light of how we're about to talk about Revelation and whether we should import what John is saying about the antichrist here in John Into the book of Revelation, which does not ever use the word antichrist. Let me just say that at the beginning, but the the letter of John does.
1: I know it does. Where's the verse?
0: Uh, I think we're in chapter two, starting in verse eighteen. So he says, "Children, it is the last hour." There he is. As you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But by going out, they made it plain that none of them belongs to us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, what's
1: he talking about? So, the maybe the easiest thing would be to say would to start with by saying what he's not talking mm-hmm. about. This does not appear to be a. Did you read the Left Behind novels? <laughs>
0: uh, not, not, no. It's a short answer. Okay. I have heard some of them on audiobook on family road trips <laughs> okay but that's fuzzy so, fuzzy memories i think his
1: name is Nicolai carpathia yeah. he's the yes. kind of the the picture of the antichrist in that kind of way of thinking about the the end of times literature in the bible this one figurehead who is going to deceive the nations and be an opponent of god uh an avatar of satan whatever the case may be mm-hmm. that that is not what john is talking about here because um, he gives us clues in what he says. Um, so you've heard that the antichrist is coming. Even now, many antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not. They went out from us, but didn't really belong to us. For if they had, they would have remained. In other words, they are people that have heard the gospel or been connected to a church, and they have gone out, and they are they are teaching things or proclaiming things that are different. They are opposed to the gospel which is literally what antichrist Antichrist means and so the the there's a lot of there's some question about when he uses the the definite article the antichrist Mm -hmm. um in your bible may capitalize that if it does that means the translator had an opinion about what that meant Um, but the greek doesn't do that and so the um the antichrist and many antichrists these are people who are teaching a contrary gospel And these are false teachers. Uh, We know that this is a concern. As I said earlier, that seems to be one of the concerns behind John writing this and at least second John. Um, And the, yeah, he's just warning them that false teachers are coming. Be prepared. Well, yeah. And so maybe just the thing that
0: we'd want to emphasize there is that Antichrist, John is not saying that there's just one that maybe we could say that Antichrist is more like an I don't want to say an attitude but more like a a posture towards the gospel rather than a particular individual mm-hmm. <laughs> or even a particular teaching like I mean he's he's obviously talking about a particular group here that yes. left this this Christian community and they're all antichrist you know but I think that when he refers to plural you know it just means that it could you know that that's a it's a it's more of a category maybe than a than a title or a or a person if that makes sense mm-hmm. now that does not preclude that Prior to the Lord's return, there will be particular people who oh, are sure, sure. particular embodiments of this attitude—the man of, man of lawlessness, or, right? Right. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's not necessarily, yeah. It's not that there is just just the one. Like again, there may be, a, you know, particular exam, example examples exemplars of this antichrist attitude, uh, and that seems obviously very clear from church history Mm -hmm. you know that that's happened several times and some of them in fact have been popes but it's you know so looking looking to the future that will that will continue until the lord's return Mm -hmm. so john very famously talks about uses the the phrase that god is love And let me read some of the verses here i'm in chapter four starting in verse seven beloved let us love one another because love is from god everyone who loves is born of god and knows god Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. So what does John mean? When he says that God is love, because I think that's kind of the linchpin. If you get that wrong, then the rest of what he says will be askew. But if you get that right, then
1: yeah. Again, sometimes it's easier to start with what he's not saying. He's not saying that love is God, Mm -hmm. right? So the, the warm feeling you have towards your favorite Christmas cookies is not what God is. Um, and that has been a misunderstanding by people for a very long time. Um, what he's saying here is that God and the characteristic of love is integral into who God is. And so the perfect picture of love is God. Everything that he does finds its root in his love for us. It's his defining characteristic is his love. And so again, we have hyperbole, we have exaggeration. When John says God is love, he is making the point very emphatically that God is loving. And I think that that is the easiest way for me to, to, to grab that.
0: Mm-hmm. And that that's his base. Like that is the, found, God is not, well, anyway, just that the foundation mm-hmm. of what God is, is love. love. Yeah, Right. That's the deepest truth, the deepest reality, not judgment, you know, or wrath or whatever else. Those things are outflowings of his love. And that and might, we've, that, and we've, that might strike you weird. A right. few times as we've gone throughout the Bible, just because, I mean, I think that's what, I mean, the Bible has been telling us that all along, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but it, but it, it, uh, if you start from the wrath and then work your way in, I think again, you you're, we can get a skew and that's, that's part of the corrective that Jesus is, you know, for God's people is to display, you know, this is what it actually looks like when God shows up and walks among us. Certainly, Jesus had some wrath. I mean, he flipped tables over, criticized the leadership, you know, sent people away from him. I mean, that those things happened and that's part of it. <clears throat> Excuse me, but those were coming from his kind of core reality of, of love. Do you think can we, because I, and I agree with everything you said, but I also think, I tend to think of this as sort of a shorthand way of talking about the, uh, the Trinity or the Trinitarian nature of God. What do you mean by that? Well, that I think that we often, and we haven't talked about it much just because, I mean, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is biblical, but it's not explicitly biblical, if that makes sense.
1: Meaning the word Trinity is never used in the right. Bible.
0: And it never just comes out and says God is, you know, three, three and persons. One. Yeah, uh, And again, so much of what the Bible tells us, it does not just come out and say so that that tracks. But just this idea that, you know, love requires an other you know, to, for it to be love, <laughs> or, you know, so I think it makes sense that, that Yahweh, as he is revealed over the course of time through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, you know, with, with the fellowship, into the fellowship of the church, is that there are more than one persons, you know, who is God, and that those persons exist in love with one another, you know, and that helps us understand part of what I think the doctrine of the Trinity is telling us is that love relationship, that is the the bedrock of the universe yes. you know not something else um and so you know for us to say that that well god god had to create something else to love in order to love right it's like well that's not great <laughs> because then god needed you know the universe in some way and the bible is very clear that he doesn't he does not so it's like that that love is inherent internal you know to himself yes as the trinity and then the universe was created i think just to participate in what was already happening you know or to enjoy what was already happening not yes. as a requirement you know for that to be happening mm-hmm. again that. that you know that's a theological unspooling of what john's saying that's yep. not all inherent you know necessarily in what he's no but i think it's right about. is
1: that love requires an object And um, we see in the Trinity a community, a dance of love. Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely true. The book of Jude is another one of these one chapter short letters, right? We get Mm -hmm. 2nd, 3rd John, then Jude. Um, but there's just—it's a little different in a, in a couple of ways, Pastor Ben. I was wondering if you could just give us a, an overview or a description of what's what is the the letter of Jude. So Jude is
0: is often overlooked because it's short and it is sitting like before the fiery gates of the book of Revelation, <laughs> so it just tends to get. Hmm. forgotten, but it's obviously worth reading. It's scripture, uh, just like the rest of it. Jude himself is one of the brothers of Jesus. And so that's, I mean, he and James, you know, so it's another letter written by one of Jesus's uh, actual brothers, which is interesting. I uh, have done a little bit of reading into just the, the kind of the role that Jesus's blood relations played in the very earliest, you know, decades of, of Christianity and in uh, in Israel and Palestine, and, and that was just kind of interesting to think about, you know that so you know because Paul, I mean Paul's a Jewish person, you know the rest of the mostly Jewish people, but uh, you know the actual family of Jesus, the people who like grew up with him and knew him, and and uh, it was just so that was just interesting to think about, and so Jude is obviously a reflection of that, you know he wasn't a leader like James was, like a leader of the Jer- Jerusalem community, and yet he had this this kind of authority uh, given to him. Um, And what we see in Jude, it's it's in a similar vein to, I think, what John was doing just in terms of trying to speak against the rise of these false teachings and the people who were uh, propagating them. Jude is a little different in that he is sort of a a, uh, historical survey of like, here's what happened in the past to people who tried to lead God's people astray. Spoiler alert, they were punished. And so then this is what's going to happen to the people who are now trying to lead God's people astray in these in these various ways. Um, and so it it is a warning, just in, again in a similar way to to John's letters. And even, you know, I think this is really happening in all the letters that, you know, they're trying to warn the churches away. Um, but just a very strong, I think a strong warning of God's judgment against those who would like Balaam or Korah or some of these other figures who would try to to uh, lure,
1: you know, faithful people off the path. Mm -hmm. So there's a specific um, passage that is kind of the, I don't know, it's not the only like one that hits us odd, but it's kind of the center of it. So Mm -hmm. starting in verse eight, in the very same way on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander what they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. So there's a lot there. Some of this we recognize from Scripture. Um, we know who, what Balaam's error is. We know what the way of Cain is. We know what Kor's rebellion is. But who is the archangel Michael, and where did this talk about the the body of Moses and these all the celestial beings talk come from? And are there any clues in Jude itself to that?
0: Well, we've seen the Marca- the archangel the archangel Michael in the book of Daniel. Uh, where he's described as the prince of the people of Israel, and so just kind of a protector or a guardian angel over the nation of Israel. Uh, And, uh, I mean, church history has kind of developed Michael in different ways, but that's not saying necessarily, I'm not casting judgment on that, just that we've left the Bible behind at that point. And so um, that appears to be kind of the figure of, of the archangel Michael. In terms of this event, this disputation with the devil over the body of Moses, that seems to come from something, a another ancient story that was not considered scripture by Christians or Jews, <laughs> or at least not broadly. Um, and I think that Jude is invoking it because it was known, it was well known at that time, and uh, may even have been used by some of these false teachers. And so he's kind of taking a resource that they were using and then and then saying, look, it's actually saying it's teaching the opposite of, of what you're doing in terms of blaspheming celestial beings. That is, that's interesting. And cause he, or not blaspheming. He very well, mine says slander. Did yours say blaspheme? Um, heaping abuse. Okay. Cause I was gonna say it's actually not blasphemy. Let me, let me clarify terms here. <laughs> I mean, the word is blasphemeo. Oh, like it's okay. Well, I guess I figure blaspheming is really only against God himself. But so I think that we could, that could mean two things, at least two things, and maybe both. It could just, I mean, quite simply, mean that these part of this false teaching was to openly disrespect angels and and spiritual powers, either through like belittling them or I don't know, just somehow. I, I'm not sure about that. It could also be a way of describing immorality. Uh, so we know that. For first century, some first century Jewish communities, and then this probably carried over into Christian communities. They had a very strong sense of the presence of angelic beings with them in their worship, and so it could just be that you know by by making these choices that he says earlier, they uh, defile the flesh, they reject authority. You know, they do these other things that they're offending the angels, kind of in their presence or in their midst. And so that was it's it's a for to us because well, I mean we never think of, think about things <laughs> in those categories not ever <laughs> in contemporary Christianity but again for them 2000 years ago there was this very strong sense that the angelic was with them you know as they or or you could say that through their worship they were joining the angelic praise of god in the heavenly realms you know that it was like a it's a temple moment right it's an overlap mm-hmm. between heaven and earth
1: i think yeah sorry
0: oh and so i would just say so it could just be it's just it's a kind of a a uh kind of culture specific way to just talk about being immoral and kind of offending you know these these righteous spiritual beings who are in your midst you know and we we probably get a little of that in paul in first corinthians we didn't really talk about the whole head covering thing but he he references something you know that women ought to basically that women ought to be modest for the sake of the angels. You know, it's like, Whoa, what, (laughs) you know, it's probably the same sort of at the same sort of thinking that because we are, you know, joining into the heavenly worship, you know, kind of coming into the presence of God, certainly you don't want to offend God himself, you know, and I think that's just a way of of kind of uh, talking
1: about that. Uh, Enoch is mentioned. I, I think maybe this is worth it, worth mentioning. One of the things that we, we find in scripture is that they not every time uh, another source or another person is talked about, are they talked about in the way that we see them. Um, so for example, Enoch in verse 14, the seventh from Adam prophesied about them. And this is a quote from the book of first Enoch, which is written uh, less than a hundred years before Jesus. And Jude knew that. Uh, Jude had no I no thought that the actual Enoch from the beginning of the book of Genesis penned the Book of Enoch. Um, that's that's not something that he believed. yet he refers to Enoch as the one saying the things in First Enoch. He's not lying, He's not misgu- he's not deceiving you. He's just referring to a well-known story um, and and letting that story speak. And I think that that's an important way to, that's a clue for not just how Jude understood scripture and read scripture, but also how we should look at. When the New Testament refers to voices or people or stories, it is not always a declaration that it is exactly as they are describing. Um, so some people think, for example, Jonah is a parable, but Jesus refers to Jonah. So does that mean it can't be a parable? No. No. That I'm not saying Jonah's a parable. I'm just saying Jesus referring to Jonah does not mean that Jonah is not a parable. Um, And that's, I don't know, that's helpful for me as I read scripture, that I can not have to take this everything like an engineering textbook, that everything that is referred to as something else is absolutely, literally the way it's being talked about. Does that make sense? But now that
0: Jude has quoted this line from Enoch, it is inspired scripture, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just like the lines from the poets that Paul quoted are now part of inspired uh-huh. Scripture. They weren't when they wrote them, but now that Paul's quoted them. That one line. <laughs> well, or the whole book. It is That yes. one line. <laughs> yes. Of course. Well, and so I think that Jude, you know, just on a historical level, I think Jude is a is a very valuable snapshot of like the, the church within the land of Israel you know, with Paul you get snapshots of these churches around the Mediterranean, and that's obviously very valuable as well. But I think Jude sounds a little different because Jewish Christian Israeli Christianity was a little different, you know, than than the majority Gentile churches that some of the other apostles were mm-hmm. writing to. And uh not different like mistaken or anything like that, but just they had slightly different emphasis. They were pulling from slightly a slightly different pool of resources and, and you just see that reflected in the book of Jude.
1: So the book of Revelation scares me a bit. And here's what I mean by that. Um, not scares me as in, I feel like my future's in doubt because of it. Um, that very much the, the, the message of Revelation is that our future is not in doubt. Mm. But it is a book that people attach a lot of um, emotional emphasis to. And when we look at the book and we talk about how certain things could be seen in different ways some people tend to react very strongly negatively to that. And that's particularly problematic because Revelation is intentionally vague and opaque about things. Um, John sometimes, when he wants to clearly refer to a thing without clearly referring to it, uses a symbol that was well-known at the time that we misunderstand now to mean something completely different. And and those add up. There's like a kaleidoscope of images that are just sewn together and used to tell a story um, that that is difficult for us to t- to get all of without just a deep and intimate knowledge of the Old Testament. And so, a lot of the the stories we've told ourselves about what Revelation is talking about, I think, miss the primary point of of John as he wrote it. And so, as we talk about it, I mean, if we say things that are um, troublesome to you because you've understood specific images or passages differently, please come and talk to us about it.
0: Well, yeah. And I I think that we, uh, and this has been true from the very beginning, right? That our approach isn't, even if we think you're wrong, (laughs) our approach is rarely to just say that, but rather to say, you know, let's deepen our understanding, let's widen, let's broaden our understanding. And that's true for us too. No, absolutely. It's absolutely true for us too. And so I think that you know, it's like when i taught class groups or classes on Romans or, or Deuteronomy or whatever, it's the, my, my, my heart is not to say, so everything you already thought you knew was wrong. And now you just need to take everything I say as what's right. No, (laughs) you know, it's like, all right, you have your perspective and understanding. I have my perspective and understanding. We're both hopefully coming in humility to the feet of Jesus to learn, you know, from these things. And I, I hope that that, that, attitude has been evident as we've as we've gone throughout the entire bible and and that still remains true today in revelation uh so this was also written by the apostle john we think yeah. i so, mean that's the strong can i traditional, tell the story of, well, i was of... gonna ask that a strong that's the strong traditional understanding so maybe we can begin with how did john and it seems he's writing from a little island called patmos how did he wind up there? Thank you so much for asking me that question because I'm so excited to talk about <laughs> and, it. And yeah, why what, what's the setting? Why is he there?
1: So church history tells us, this is not a story in the Bible. Um, this is something that is recorded by the earliest Christians, that the Apostle John was the longest living of the Apostles. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was pastoring in Ephesus with Timothy when he wrote the letters of John. And then he got himself exiled. And he got himself exiled because... Um, he was—he got himself in trouble with the local government, and they attempted to kill him. Um, the stories are twofold. At first, it seems like they brought him poisoned food, and he ate it without trouble. And that was a little bit of a concern. And so they decided to kill him in a bigger and more overt fashion and dipped him into boiling tar. And as they dip him into boiling tar, he is praying. And there is a crowd watching. This was a public execution. He's dipped into the boiling tar and then they come back up expecting a charred corpse. And instead, the tar does not stick to John and he's still praying. And what happens is all the people around start saying, whatever God he worships, I want to worship. The God that can protect you from boiling tar is the God that we want to follow. And so what do you do with a person who's troublesome and you cannot kill them? Um, you send them away where they cannot be any more trouble. And what I love about this is he got sent away to this island so he couldn't be any more trouble, and God took that as an opportunity to reveal to him the, the visions he sees in the book of Revelation, which have been a tremendous comfort and blessing and exhortation to the church for 2,000— you could say perhaps um, the, the much bigger than any problem he was causing as a pastor in Ephesus— he causes by penning the book of revelation and i love the irony of that um and then of course church history tells us that eventually he may have been able to return to ephesus and so and died naturally and died. as far as we know right? or he still wanders yeah well probably not probably not
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so why then we know okay so he received these visions uh but the book of revelation is framed as a letter so it starts with messages to mm-hmm. churches and what's and today, that's really Turkey. important and so maybe can you speak into a little bit of, you know, so so it seems like, and this is my speculative timeline, so you can react to that and then answer the question. One, John's exiled to Patmos. At some point, he has this series of visions that he wrote down or recorded or just remembered. And then he must have gotten visits or mail or something because he learns about some of these issues that are facing the churches. And so then he is led to both write these short messages to the churches and then also attach his visions to these letters that are then sent, you know, copies to all the churches or whatever. And so, like, what what is he what is he kind of addressing in those letters and why, how do we see, this might be a bigger question than is possible, but how do we see the, the things brought up in those letters then reflected in Revelation, the visions of Revelation?
1: Hmm. So, what is he dealing with in the letters? So, each of these letters he sends to a different, or uh, he addresses in one go the, a different church in Turkey. And what's interesting about that is he does not, it's kind of like, if you are doing wrong, and as, a, as a, a child, and your parent chastises you but calls the whole family together to watch... Um, there's a, a right, bigger, all,
0: each church got every other church's letter too. Yep. <laughs>
1: yeah. yep. And so, so the, the reason for that, I think was not to humiliate the church with the struggles it was having, but because what he was saying to each church was beneficial, he thought it would be good for all of them to have it. And in fact, we have it. And so right. God, I think has confirmed John's instinct that it was beneficial for the whole body of Christ. To be able to read each of the, the problems mm. and then what, what Jesus has to say to them um, in the midst of them. And there are a variety of things that are here, but the, I think the general thrust of this is the issue of idolatry. And John says, don't do that. Um, if I were to sum up all the letters, he would say, take your faith seriously and don't commit an idolatry. Would you say that there's a better way to sum up the, the, each of these little messages? I think
0: idolatry is right, but I think that, and we'll we'll maybe talk about this a little bit more in in a second. I would say that I think it's really it's allegiance, is okay, like exclusive allegiance to which I'm not disagreeing necessarily, but it's not, I don't know if the problem was that these churches were like, well, we're not going to be Christian anymore. We're going to go back to our pagan gods. It seems like it was more that, that the their cultural context, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, insisted that they participate in some of these pagan sure. practices. And, and John is saying, no, you can't, you yes, can't do that. Yes, I will agree with that completely, yeah. Which is not, not what you were saying, uh, but I think just, yeah.
1: No, allegiance is a better way to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I think absolutely. And so allegiance and uh, avoid idolatry. I think is there Um, address. I mean, there's some very famous passages from this section. These, the first three chapters of revelation where um, things that you've heard a lot, the, the Mm -hmm. lukewarm Mm -hmm. um, word that we stand
0: at the door and knock Mm -hmm.
1: all that is, is here. And it is my word. It is, it is good. Um, I want to encourage you to read it. Well, and, and, and and to read it
0: as a whole, right? Like it's, and that's part of why I asked that mm -hmm. question is like, we will see the themes from these little letterlets, expanded and echoed in the visions yes. themselves like it is one book <laughs> you mm-hmm. know like it's he was right to to combine these things and we just need to be need to be aware of that and I Ooh. think oh, well and just letting the because I think we tend to you know not skip over these letters to the churches but like when we think of revelation we think of the visions mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's wrong but again to remember that these visions that John employed them in the service of these churches facing their issues then.
1: Yes. Well, and that's not yes. a thousand years
0: from now, but that's the, what the I things was, they were yeah. dealing with. I mean, today there today was 2000 years ago, but you know what I mean? The things that they were dealing with today, you know,
1: in, in their contemporary day and mm-hmm. age. Yes. It is. The fact that it is a letter. And so when we think about an author writing a book, um, he's not usually writing that book, for a specific person or, or church. Um, he could be. But, you know, when an author re- writes a book, it's generally for the, the, the world or the church or, or whatever. Um, that's not really how these, these things were done then. But he specifies that this is a letter. Um, mm-hmm. And that matters because that means it is occasional. It is addressing the situation that they find themselves in now. Now, that does not mean that there's nothing about the future here. That right. doesn't mean that at all. It just means that everything, as you said, had to make sense to them. Right. And so if it is exclusively about things that are going to be happening in our future, or as we often think about our near future, then that would be very strange right. to write as an occasional letter to churches that were in the midst of a needing of encouragement and rebuke. Right
0: and and you've already you already gestured towards this a little bit but maybe we can talk for a minute just about the the Old Testament symbolism present in revelation it's old testament symbolism all the way down (laughs) yeah
1: and it just doesn't (laughs) stop a kaleidoscope kaleidoscope really is the right word Kaleidoscope's a good word because if you if you picture i don't know when the last time you looked at a kaleidoscope was it's been a long time for me but these pictures they they're intense and they just run together Mm -hmm. right they don't they don't fit neat boxes Mm -hmm. it's not i have these pictures on my wall in frames spaced apart it's not like that it's it's all blended together
0: yeah um, and I mean, it's, it's just, again, at the level of literature, like, it's an amazing achievement. Because the whole Bible, you know, and, and they've made charts of this, like, you can find picture uh, illustrations of like all the references and connections, you know, it looks like a, like a the weave of like a fabric or something, you know, just all these lines crisscrossing and connecting. And Revelation is like, the the, that to the, to the nth degree, you know, just all the references that it's line by line by line, chock full. And I hope, you know, those of you who have, who have made it all the way from Genesis, you know, and you may have read Revelation before, and you may have, have seen a lot of these, these symbols and, and references and names and things before, but now having gone through the whole Bible over this year to then end with Revelation and just the, the symphony you know kaleidoscope the, none of these words quite do justice to what it is of just like the the depth of of the old testament symbolism here and the new testament symbolism i mean those are of the same you know substance of the same cloth yeah of just that it i mean almost it's it's hard to come up with with an aspect of the bible that is not recapitulated in some form in revelation i mean it, it really is a a summing up it's fitting for it to come at the end of, of the Bible, just yeah. in terms of his literary flow. It's you know. so
1: brilliant. It's almost like he had
0: <laughs> It's almost like it was divinely inspired. Um, any particular aspects <laughs> of Old Testament symbolism? Maybe things that we get confused about easily, oh. in your opinion, that you'd want to just touch on? Yeah.
1: Um, actually, yeah. One second. Let me... So let's go to Revelation uh, 13. We get this idea of the mark of a beast. mm and then a number 666. And so people wonder what the Mark of the Beast is going to be. Um, again, this has to do with, with um, often it is projected as a future event that will be um, happening that will require some kind of, of act of submission or allegiance to, to someone or something else. And I think that that is almost, I mean, that is, that is 50% exactly right. Um, there is a a well known to Bible readers um, thing from the Old Testament that is is being undone by the mark of the beast. So the Shema, which is a very important thing in Deuteronomy, is this is this prayer and commitment to to God. Mm. And they were told to put it on their heads and on their hands. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that was, is it was a sign of submission of their thoughts and their actions Mm -hmm. to God. And the Mark of the Beast is talked about in the same way, that this will be a thing that will be on their head or their hands, right? And so it is an anti-shema. It is, it is, it may not and likely isn't because much of what John says isn't literal, but he's talking about Christians being called or encouraged to take, make, make, make commitments of allegiance to something other than God. It is a allegiance thing. And then 666 um, has been wondered about and talked about and, and so on. And so John likes numbers. Um, when you read a number, please don't take it literally. You know, there's a lot of big numbers and John almost always means something by them or I think always means something by them. Um, 666 is interesting because Hebrew... Is a language where the letters are also numbers. Mm-hmm. And so if you if you write out, there's certain very relevant words that if you were to add up the letters, because remember letters are also numbers for them, mm-hmm. um, they would equal 666. And so one of those is Nero. Uh, one of those is the word beast. One of those is the word Caesar. And it is impossible. Now, when John writes... Nero's persecution has, has ended. Nero's gone. Domitian is probably the uh, uh, the um, emperor. emperor at the time. Um, right? Make sure about that. Mm, yeah,
0: I think that's right. In the late 90s, when yeah. Revelation supposed to have been written, it was Domitian. Okay. Er, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yes, thank you. Um, and so Domitian is the, the emperor at the time, and there's persecutions happening... Under him, um, so it's not it's not that Nero is is the actual Caesar that John is is thinking about or that the Lord has revealed to him, but it is a uh, signal for looping in an evil ruler uh, who persecutes Christians. Mm-hmm. And as we've said before, one of the things they had to do was be careful to to have a book spread and not have everyone that has it mm-hmm. killed. They could not put direct. Um treason in it. Mm-hmm. And so this is a way to conceal from a Gentile who perhaps doesn't know Hebrew mm-hmm. that this is this is what he is saying. And so it's it's a reference to um, beast, Caesar, and Nero. And I don't it, there might be more, but those are those are there. Um, yeah, that's what immediately came to mind is a symbol that we misunderstand or we wonder about, but I think it's pretty clear. And then dragon talk, we've talked about this before. dragon is almost certainly, Serpent. In fact, I think John makes it very clear yes, yes. Um, eventually in Revelation that when he Who si- is the devil, that ancient serpent. Yes. Yeah. And so he's, I mean, we're getting Genesis 3 vibes there, right? Mm-hmm. The serpent in the garden. Does that mean that the serpent in the garden was a dragon? I think the picture we have here is just that perhaps when we picture a snake, that that was a smaller aspect of of him they, and this is the they, whole-
0: they, I mean, I think really it's hostile reptile. Yeah. That's, the, <laughs> that's the idea. That could be big. That could be little. Yeah. Yeah. I mean they refer to large snakes sometimes as dragons and mm-hmm. so, you know, it's it's not it's not the medieval, you know, creature with four legs and wings and yeah. fire breathing that we Leviathan might also be part to. of this. Right. Leviathan mm-hmm. would be a hostile reptile, yeah.
1: And so, yeah. Um did you have any other symbols in mind that you wanted to address? I mean,
0: no, I cuz again, I think the Bible to some extent, you know, it speaks for itself, right? It's like, all right, we just got finished reading all the rest of it. It's like you should recognize some a lot of things from the book of Daniel. Mm-hmm. You should recognize a lot of resonance with Genesis. And his, Sinai appears and the Exodus appears throughout Revelation.
1: Ezekiel, I think, is Ezekiel, his favorite.
0: The punishments of the people in the wilderness, uh, you know, and so it's just... Over and over again, you know, lambs, sacrifices, the Ark of the Covenant, the temple, incense, all the stuff from Leviticus. Like I mean it's well, and so I think maybe the the next like kind of layer, context contextual layer that I feel like we have to at least just point to and address, and we've already referenced it because it's unavoidable, is the Roman imperial context that that John is writing in. Mm-hmm. And just what are some ways in which the more that we know about the the Roman Empire and just what its expectations were and, and what was happening and the pressure being put on Christian communities can help us understand what Revelation is and what it's doing. Because just like there's a lot of Old Testament symbolism, there is a lot of Roman imperial symbolism throughout Revelation as well. And uh, you won't know that from reading the Bible. <laughs> you have to just know that. You have to go look it up and... And, but you know statues, eagles, the marks on foreheads and hands, like I mean that that's all Roman Empire stuff um, that I think just helps us understand that you know John is writing two people under the power, you know the earthly power of the Roman Empire. And again, four issues that are that they're having to deal with and sort through today, not you know, wait 3,000 years for something to happen you know in the far distant future. I think the part of what Revelation is telling us, and again, this is the prophetic, it's it's in line with the rest of the prophetic literature and the apocalyptic literature in the Bible, is that history obviously runs in patterns because yes. people tend to make the same mistakes. Because people tend to make the same mistakes and God is faithful. You know, those are, that's the reason I think that history runs in patterns. Um, and so certainly, you know does it does it mean that when John was writing, he was thinking of specific things that were happening in his day and age? Yes. Does that mean that that can't also apply to things happening in the future? Well, sure, it can. because again, the same sorts of things keep happening. Empires always,, yeah. uh, require absolute allegiance from the people underneath them and try and quash any other you know so it's like you'll just see that happening over and over there will always be antichrist figures Mm -hmm. and movements you know that arise that are against the gospel and against Jesus as Messiah you know so you just kind of see these same things playing out over and over again and I think that John I don't want to say it's an error because I don't think it's as strong as an error but I think that maybe the the oopsie that we often take with revelation is that all the things it's referring to it's referring to a single event or mm. figure that will happen at the end of time and that it, he's not he's referring to and he's he's draw he's drawing on these vast banks of symbolism to help the christians understand their present reality two thousand years ago does, and also for the Christians yes. today to understand well, that reality. that's so remarkable. And the Christians, if the Lord tarries, 3,000 years
1: from now to right. understand their reality. Well, so, one of the things Pastor Ken used to say that I, I think he was exactly right is that you know the Spirit has been behind the book of Revelation because of the way that every generation of the church throughout history has come to it and found it speaking to them in right. their current context. Every generation throughout history has had the same thing that we do, where we kind of read Revelation and we think he's talking about right now. <laughs> right, um, and that that is not something a human would be capable of yeah. doing. That is that is done by God. Um, the other the other piece of this is there is future talk all over Revelation because it, especially in when we get to Revelation eight through sixteen, we get these several takes of sevens, right. And it seems like what's happening there, um, it could be that that's like a chronological telling of a series of events. But what I think is happening is that each time we move from uh, like each thing of sevens is a telling of the story of – Present struggle and difficulty all the way to God's coming judgment, which is in the future. Mm-hmm. And then, when you get to the next set of sevens, he's it telling the same again. story yeah. from a different perspective. And so, instead of that being one line of events, I think that is a retelling of a story. Part of which is in the present or past. Part of which is in the future, again and again and again. So that I think it happens three times or four. I think three times in that yeah. in that little bundle of passages. And, and that's important because you're getting, it's like, it's like looking at a thing and then getting, that's a big deal and a huge event and then getting to move to a different spot from a different perspective and watch it again. And, and he's telling a story in three different ways. And that's, that's wonderful. Now that doesn't mean that John didn't have a vision showing him these things. I think that that is from God. I just really want to, as we're talking about, John as the author I don't think we credit John and his brilliant mind with this. This is what God has shown to him. So one of the passages that, or maybe the primary passage that is often thought about as uh, very important in Revelation, comes in chapter 20, where we get talk about something called the millennium. Um, I think the first thing I want to say here is that this the thousand years. This is the only time in scripture that this occurs. Mm-hmm. Something that you always want to be careful about is when you base an entire way of looking at scripture or an entire major field of, of belief on, on one section of, a, of a, a passage in one book of the Bible. Um, also, when that book is very, very symbolic and thick with imagery. Right. And uh, I mean, that just gets that gets fuzzy. Um, but we have this question about what's going on with the the dragon, the devil, the, serp- the serpent, Satan, being bound for a thousand years, locked into abyss and abyss, so he can't threaten nations anymore. And then later on he's set free for a little while. Um, what I think is happening there, just to be very quick here, um, is we have the picture of, again, we're, we're in a whole lot of symbolism, but you get you get Satan locked up or bound, which is something Jesus says He has already done mm-hmm. because that's why He's able to perform exorcisms, mm-hmm. um, and and then He's defeated in a in a new way at, at the resurrection. Um, but what is this about Him being let loose for a little while? So Satan's original or one of His original duties seems to have been to be an accuser of God's people, a way of making sure that that um, reprehensible things are are reprimanded. You know, the the drawing attention to things that need to be dealt with is the good version of what Satan was supposed to do. And of course, he he expands and he's corrupted and, and all of that. Um, but it seems like the letting him free for a short time at the end is to make sure that all evil is dealt with. And so he's the one that will point to it. He's the one who will, who will be used by God to demonstrate that all evil is being dealt with. And so, I think the picture is that he's bound now. When he's let loose, it's not like he gets free reign. It's that God is going to use him to draw attention to all the parts of creation that need to be purged or cleaned or done away with, and then he will do away with them. Um, what about questions about the thousand years? When does the thousand years happen? There are several Christian theories here. My, I don't want to talk about them other than to say, please don't attach an emotional significance to which thousand year um, view a person has. If that's something you've done, what I want to warn you about is we've taken something then that isn't central Mm -hmm. and we're in danger of making it central. And that's not a good way to look at scripture.
0: Uh, Yeah. And then we come to, I mean, the end chapters 21 and 22. And again, just so thick with, with uh, references to the rest of the Bible the temple, the high priest's breastplate, uh, I mean, the prophets, it's just, it really is a, I mean, you really could go sentence by sentence and, and just pick out all the, the ways that it's referring to things. You know, and I think that ultimately, all of that being said about the book of Revelation, right, that it's, it ends this way because John, yes, he wants to, he wants to urge the churches to allegiance, you know, flee from Babylon, flee from Rome. Flee to Jesus. But I think that with that, he wants to provide the encouragement and even the motivation for that allegiance, right? That, like, Jesus is already victorious and he will be finally victorious over all enemies and anyone who would try and oppose him, including whoever happens to be oppressing you right now. You know, that again, true for Christians then, true for Christians today. And, you know, I think that it it's just a it's just powerful powerful imagery you know for all of us who suffer sin and death but especially you know those of us I think especially of like those in the persecuted church who someone else is actively trying to kill them or, or make their lives hard because they're following Jesus of just this promise that you know the day is coming when it really will all be over you know and in, in God's redemption, God's resurrection life will be present the earth will be covered with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Uh, and yeah, it's just, it's, it, they're amazing. It's an amazing couple of chapters and I think a lot of familiar, familiar imagery to us, but it's just worth reading, I think, slowly and, and, uh, prayerfully. One of the, I think the only thing that I want to particularly point out here is just in, at the beginning of chapter 21, um, when it talks about, you know, the New Jerusalem coming down and then verse three, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. And there is a uh, a Hawaiian pidgin English translation of the New Testament that I've enjoyed reading uh, just because it's, it's a, you know, paraphrase. I mean, it's a legitimate translation, but they had a committee and everything, but the way that they translate, uh, verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes as they say that, uh, something like, you know, you won't be sore inside anymore. Hmm. And I've just, that's always really resonated ever since I read that. It's like, oh yeah, that'll be nice. Yeah. You won't be sore inside no more. <laughs> you know? And it's like, and we have that, we have those promises um, for God to hold on to.
1: I think just before we give our final uh, sign off, um, I would like to read the last two verses of the book of Revelation in the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends.
0: Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.